0: There are few scriptures in the Bible that are more foundational uh, than the one we get to study tonight. Like there, there are just, there, there are some texts that are, I'm not even going to go there, I'm going to get myself in dangerous waters. But there are few that are more foundational for who we are. For who God is, what he's done, and and our new identity in him. And this is one of those texts. This is one of those really exciting foundational texts for any Christian, but particularly us as a church. And the text that we're in tonight, starting in verse 15, uh, a lot of people believe Paul didn't actually write this. He just borrowed this. This was a common theological hymn, a poem, a song that the early church sang to teach themselves theology of Jesus. And so, a lot of scholars actually believe Paul grabbed a hold on to this common song that a lot of early churches and implanted it here in this letter to teach the church at Colossae something about Jesus. And the things that are in this passage are essential, absolutely foundational, and critical for every follower of Jesus to have in their minds and in their hearts. And this is something the early church sang, so, it's something they would memorize and and be meditating on, thinking about daily. And it, what it is, is, is this text is a restating of a whole lot of Old Testament theology through the lens of Jesus. And so this text is really crucial. What Paul starts to do here is unpack a Christology or a theology of Jesus. And he does this at the beginning of this letter because it is vitally important for the Christians at Colossae to be rooted in a good theology of Christ. Because Christology or a theology of Christ dictates how you live. What you believe about Jesus dictates how you live. Put another way, Christology matters because it informs and forms our new identity as people. So it is super vital and crucial that the Colossians heard and were able to wrap their minds around this, but it's just as crucial for us to wrap our minds around today because what you believe about Jesus shapes your entire personhood and how you live. And so, Paul, at the beginning, kind of had this prayer in verses uh, like 3 through 14. And the beginning of that prayer, he's thanking God for the church at Colossae. He's praising God for the church's faithfulness to Christ, their love for one another, and the hope they have in Jesus. And then he goes on to encourage them in some specific things in that prayer. And the first thing Paul does out of that prayer is root them in a good foundation of who Jesus is and what he has done. And what that does for us. This is one of those passages in the Bible that is the gospel if we just read it through. And Paul starts here because there are some particular issues at play in the Colossian church and the city and the culture surrounding them. That Paul sees it as vital to first and foremost lift up Jesus. And so just as way of a recap, those issues that are happening in the culture in the city of Colossae are uh, syncretism and this polytheism where you could just simply add Jesus into the long list of gods you already worshipped. So that was one big problem facing the Colossians. The second was pressure from the Jewish Christians to quote-unquote complete their salvation By doing all these extra things. So they would say, oh sweet, you believe the message of Jesus, now you're saved, now you can't eat pork, and now you have to get circumcised. And all these other things that would happen along the way. And so that was one of, or two of the issues that are facing the church at Colossae. And the third is the temptation to place their hope in the Roman Empire. The most powerful, aggressive, and dominating empire the world had ever known up till that point. And because of the relative safety, security, peace, and prosperity... If you are a Roman citizen inside the confines of the Roman Empire, it was tempting to put your hope there in Rome's laws and their governments and their leaders and their way of life because their way of life produced what seemed like peace and prosperity for its members. And so these were the three big issues that are facing the Colossian church. While Paul has praised God for their faithfulness, there are still issues and temptations that Paul is going to be sorting through throughout this letter. And what Paul does to answer these questions and to help solve these problems and teach into some of the issues that are happening here is he starts first and foremost by lifting up Jesus, by elevating the work and the person of Jesus. And so for us, as we are walking in today with whatever problems, issues, temptations that you are facing, the remedy is the exact same for us. That the starting point to working through any of life's problems is to lift up Jesus. I will go so bold to say that all of life's problems find their starting point in a solution, in the person and work of Jesus. And that's what Paul does for us. It's what he does for the Colossians. So I want to ask you guys, where do you typically go to solve your problems? Like, what is your, if something comes up in your family, if you have a problem at work, whatever, what is your, like, go-to knee-jerk response to try to solve a problem that comes up? It's probably, like, leaning on gaining more knowledge to solve a particular problem. So I was fixing this computer part the other day, and I hit my wall of knowledge of what to do, and so was the first thing I did. YouTube, 100%. Absolutely. I'm like, okay, I got to learn whatever the next step is because I don't, I've hit my wall. I don't know what else to do at this point. So I got to go learn and increase my knowledge at that point. Some of us might lean on our experience, the depth of experience we have in any given field. We have a lot of really talented people who have a depth of experience and a whole lot of careers from medical industry to creative industry to sales to whatever. And so if a problem comes up at work, you can lean on that experience that you have spent years cultivating. Maybe your willpower, or maybe when problems come up, we numb ourselves to those problems. And we practice escapism by just throwing on five hours of Netflix and hoping the problem goes away. Like, these are typically how we solve our problems, I don't know how the Colossians typically solved their problems, but however they were solving problems, Paul teaches them as a step one to any problem, temptation, or issue facing them is to lift up Jesus. To see him for who he is and to shape our lives around that reality. What they need to know, above all, is as they are growing as Christians, increasing in wisdom and power, patience, and thanksgiving, what they need to know most of all, what they need to ground themselves most of all, is the centrality and supremacy of Jesus above everything and everybody else. That is the starting point to tackle any problem in your life. The Colossians had big problems they were trying to tackle. Oppressive cultural problems, pressure from hyper-legalistic, moralistic Jewish Christians, The temptation to give in to the biggest empire the world has ever known and see that empire as their only source of hope. And to all those problems, Paul says, the first thing you need to do is to lift up Jesus. Worship him. Know him for who he is. See him as king, as Lord. And then to then start tackling Whatever The rest of this letter is a lot of Paul tackling some of the issues. Paul is doing a lot of teaching about family life, about how we treat people we work with, about how we treat each other in the church, and he starts by lifting up Jesus. So no matter what we are facing, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what your, your experience is like in the church or with Jesus, we need to do what Paul models for us, is to lift up Jesus. And so let's read, starting in verse 15, and then we're going to work through some of what we are seeing here. In Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, we we desperately need you uh, today as we seek to understand what is happening here in this text and more importantly, shape it, shape our lives around it. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you be help uh, help us to be good receivers? Um, help us to be good hearers, help us to be good doers of the word today and and Father would you equip me to teach and preach and to the goals that you have for your people as we gather and and huddle around your scripture and Father would you, uh, as we just come to um, this text, I I just, I feel like I'm aware of the doubt in this room that that the answer to all of life's problems are you Um, and uh, I don't know if that's a a hostility of mind of just like a, or if it's just sort of this lifelong ambivalence we've had towards your power. Uh, But Father, even right now, as we just work through this text, would you, through the power of your spirit and, and the scriptures here in front of us, actually convince us you are the answer to all of life's problems. Would you convince us of your power and your authority over everything and everybody? God, would you help us bring our issues, temptations, problems to you with open hands and ask you to change us and to lead us in the way that you have called us. So we thank you, Jesus. Amen. There are uh, some passages that are unique and designed to teach. And this is one of those passages. It's, It's like any good song or hymn or even poem is meant to teach you something. And the songs we sing here on a Sunday are meant to teach you about Jesus and lead you to Jesus. Any good hymn or any good worship song will teach you something about Jesus. And this is one of those songs that teaches us about Jesus. And so what we're going to do today as we just work through some of what is here, we're going to let the text teach us. We're just going to walk through it line by line. I'm going to make a few comments here and there, but we're going to let the text teach us. And honestly, whatever we are bringing to the table today in terms of uh, uh, dryness, staleness, excitement, disappointment, depression, anger, bitterness, whatever we are walking into today with, we're going to walk through line by line, lift up Jesus and watch him go to work in our hearts. This is an incredibly simple practice as Christians to just remind ourselves of the person and work of Jesus. And that does something to us. And so we're going to walk through and let the passage teach us today. Starting in verse 15, Jesus, as God's visible image, clarifies the ambiguity of God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. No one has seen God, but many have seen Jesus. We have in the person of Jesus, the physical embodiment of God himself. We have seen the invisible God in the person of Jesus. A.W. Tozer says, What you think about God is the most important thing about you. When you think of God, what do you think about? Do you think of like an old white dude with a big beard sitting on a cloud? Maybe smiting people from a distance? Do you think of like this maybe more ambiguous Star Wars-y kind of force that binds everything together, but no one has really seen anything about him? Like, what do you think of when you think of God? Paul's answer is when we think of God, we ought to think of Jesus himself. Jesus. Like, not some ambiguous, like, matter, abstract energy in the sky. Not something that sparked creation and then walked away for the last however many thousands and thousands of years. But we should think of Jesus. What do you think of when you think of God? What was he like? Who is he? And Paul's answer is he's like Jesus. We should look to Jesus as the physical manifestation and representation of God himself. Do you want to know God? You need to know Jesus. Michael Reeves, in that book I mentioned earlier, says, let us then be rid of that horrid, sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there is some more sinister being, one thinner on compassion and grace. There cannot be. Jesus is the word. He is one with the Father. He is the radiance, the glow, and the glory of who his Father is. If God is like Jesus, then though I am sinful like the dying thief, I can dare to cry, remember me. I know how he will respond. Though I am so spiritually lame and leprous, I can call out to him. For I know just what he is like towards the weak and the sick. Paul wants us to know God by seeing Jesus himself. I don't know about you guys, but I was raised in in the church And uh, not that they never taught this particular verse or anything like that, but I was never raised to think of, when I think of God, think Jesus. We have four biographies of Jesus and a whole lot of other writers in the Bible that look back to him and describe him, his character, his likeness, what he was like, who he was. And somehow I always had this like vague idea of, of God instead of a very specific person who walked the earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing to another church, and he's writing a bit of a different context, but look at how he uses some language here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And in their case, there is unbelievers in the world, or those who are far from God. The God of this world, which is a shorthand for the Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? Yeah, the image of God. Absolutely. Paul wants us to know God by looking to Jesus himself. What is interesting about this text is we find out that Satan's prime job, his prime goal, is not to make you sad or bitter or depressed, not to make you sin more, not to tempt you. His prime job is to take your eyes off Jesus. Not only for the unbelieving world, not, for, not only for those who don't know him, but for you, Christian, he has a goal for you. And his goal for you is that you would not see Jesus for who he is. That you would put your eyes on yourself and be self-sufficient. That you would put your eyes on your career or your bank account as your savior and source of hope. Satan's prime job It's not to make you sin or to tempt you. It's to take your eyes off Jesus. And once your eyes are off Jesus, all bets are off altogether. He wants your eyes off Jesus and on yourself. Michael Reeves, one more time. Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus, stupidly imagining that we have seen all there is to see and used up all the pleasure there is to be had in him. We get spiritually bored But Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of the infinite God for eternity. Our boredom is simple blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. Come on. Guys, how good is that? Where are you guys right now? That is amazing. I think we're awkwardly silent in this room because we find ourselves spiritually bored. And the truth of the scripture is that boredom is blindness. That we are are not seeing Jesus for who he is when we are not seeing him for who he is. And we're looking to ourselves, our jobs, our families as the primary source of satisfaction or hope or whatever. The enemy says mission accomplished. I've taken your eyes off Jesus. And we become spiritually bored and dry and in a rut and distant. The solution to every single one of life's problems is to see Jesus, to look to him, to lift him up, to worship him, to see him for who he is. And that's why Paul, before jumping into the rest of the letter here, is lifting up Jesus. That's why before he gets into instructing husbands and wives how to love each other and how to raise kids and how to deal with coworkers and how to deal with life in the church and how to deal with all of the problems that come up, he first and foremost starts by lifting up Jesus and saying the first step in any problem that we have in life is to worship Jesus, to see him for who he is. The writer of Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature you guys know my son Calvin, he's three and a half years old, and he's just in this time right now where he's like curious and asking questions, and we're able to have like conversations about God in the Bible. Like this is a new thing, and Sherry and I are trying to like figure it out, and, uh, and one of the things we have that I'm so grateful for is we have this thing called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. We actually have it as a resource for our families that you can take, but it is a, a Bible that tells the story of God and tells all these different Bible stories through the lens of either the coming Savior or or the already has come Savior, Jesus. And it's one of these uh, Bibles that, that helps us see Jesus in every single story. It's so good. Because as Calvin is starting to ask questions like, you know, why do we go to church? Or who is God? Or what is God? Before, I felt very ill-equipped to answer those questions in a way a three-year-old might understand. But what Paul tells us So, my son asks, Who is God? What is God? I can say, He's Jesus. Let's read a story about Jesus. Let's find out how He treated people. Let's find out how He talked to the Father. Let's find out how He loved His disciples, trained them. He is the exact imprint the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God. When we think of God, we ought to think of Jesus himself. Humans are made in the image of God, but Jesus is God. He is the image of God. And Paul also calls him the firstborn here. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn in Jewish literature and culture was like a status position. It wasn't a chronological like you are the oldest child, but it was a a position of honor. It was a title for authority, for power, or something like that. And so a good example is in the Psalms uh, with David in Psalm uh, 89 verse 27 where the Lord says, and I will make David, I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if you know the story of David, you know that David was not the oldest kid in his family, right? He was actually the youngest. And what God is doing here in the Psalms is He is elevating him to this position of, of the greatest of all the kings of Israel. He's elevating his status, his authority. And so Jesus is not Made the firstborn of creation like he was made, but is his position of status and authority, that he is the ruler of all. He is the leader, the ruler, the archetype, the prototype for humanity. Verse 16, Jesus as the sovereign creator and sustainer confronts our fears. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The fears you and I have in life crop up when we take our eyes off Jesus. When we start looking at the news, we should be scared, right? When we start looking at our, our, ourselves or our families or our career for like, the main source of, of hope, value, satisfaction. We we ought to be scared. When we look to Jesus for who he is, we have no reason to be scared. We have no reason to fear. The world, according to Peter, is in a state of corruption. And through Jesus, he's reconciling and redeeming creation back to God. But those things are warring until Jesus returns. That we always lived in this fractured, fragmented state of one kingdom invading another. And we find ourselves in kind of both worlds frequently. One of this world and one of the world to come. And when we set our eyes on him, the sovereign creator and sustainer, he relieves our fears. (coughs) All <clears> right. <throat> he strips away our fears. The center of this song or this hymn that we have here is found here in verse 17. Sorry, for 16. All things were created for him, through him. That he holds everything together. That at the micro level with protons and electrons, he holds all things together. At the macro level with stars, planets, galaxies, Jesus holds all things together. This is not an impersonal Star Wars-like force that binds the universe together. This is an actual person who lived and breathed and had toenails and sweat in the summer and had friends. This person, Jesus, holds everything together. And he says, I love you. And he says, I know you. And he says, I want you in my family. I want you in my kingdom. Why should we be afraid of anything if the person who holds everything together brings us into his family? Why? Why would we be fearful? We're fearful when we take our eyes off him and look to other things as our source of power or authority or value. That's when fear crops up. And Jesus, as the creator and sustainer of everything ever made, says, I know you. And I want you in my family. We have no reason to be afraid. What are those fears in your life right now that you brought in with you today? Fears that you might not have a job in a week or two. Long-term fears like your kids are going to grow up to hate you and resent you. Fears like you may not be able to make rent next month. For a moment, take your eyes off those things. For a moment, set them on Jesus, the creator, sustainer of everything, including your rent and your job and your family. he alleviates those. Those problems don't go away. We still have to deal with those problems, but we don't have to be fearful of the outcome of those problems because he relieves our fears. Jesus, as the end goal, centers our focus. Back to verse 16 one more time. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. What is the purpose of your life? What is your, like, what's life's end goal? And these are not questions that we engage in, like, too commonly, but what is your life's end goal? Is it to just, like, make it through the day? Is that your end goal? Is it to say for a cushy retirement, to, to be famous, to be known for, for doing something of significance? To be raising kids that have a better life than the life that you had? What's what's your end goal? As a Christian, Paul says our end goal is Jesus himself. Not a task to be accomplished, not a, a mark to have made on society or culture, but it's Jesus himself. Michael Reeves, again, says the greatest benefit of union with Christ is Christ. This marriage is made so that we may know and enjoy him. Union with him is the foundation, the beginning. Communion with him is the goal. What's your end goal? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question and answer, of the call and response that's there, says "Man's and woman's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your chief end is is to enjoy Jesus. Not to make a bunch of money, not to leave your mark on society, not to raise your kids well. Those are all great things. Your chief end is to enjoy Jesus. The best part of being with Jesus is Jesus himself. What's your end goal? Is it Jesus or is it something else? And these can all be good things, like advancement in our career, raising a good, healthy, mature, loving family like making your mark on society these are all like fine things but as tim keller says when good things become god things they become idols right if they're taking the primary place in our life we are missing it altogether what's your end goal in life jesus as our end goal centers our focus daily reminds him that the whole end goal of all creation was him wasn't you wasn't your family Isn't your job? Whatever you're wrestling with right now is not the end goal of creation. We are a small blip on the radar of time and space. The end goal of all creation is Jesus Himself. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things. Did that Greek word for all is? It's all. I thought I'd played this trick on you guys before. It's all. Greek word for all is all. All things. There's nothing that was not created through him and for him. He's the end goal of all creation. Thus, he's our end goal. Clarifies our purpose. Verse 18 Jesus, as the head of the church, elevates the value of the church. And he's the head of the body, the church. I love this sequence of events that's happening here in 15, 16, 17, 18. We see Jesus as God, the physical manifestation of God himself. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the end goal of creation. And he's the head of the church. I don't know about you guys, but on first reading, that may seem like a bit of a demotion in title. After all these epic things, and what Paul does is raise the status and elevates the value of the church in God's plan for the world. Jesus, as the head of the church, elevates the value of the church. He is the church's ultimate purpose and authority. And this does a couple of things for a church. Uh, it kills self-importance in a church. Right That we have somehow figured it out, and we are all that he is the most important person in our church. It kills any version of celebrityism or personality cultism if he is the head of the church. It kills any sort of agenda-defendingness in a church, that we have to walk in and have things our way, or it's our way or the highway. And Jesus, as the head of the church, kills all of those things because he is the church's power, he is the church's ultimate authority, and he is the church's ultimate purpose. And if we have missed that ever as a church, we are failing as a church. Back half of verse 18. Jesus, as crucified reconciler, contradicts moralism. These are insane sentences, sorry. Jesus, as crucified reconciler, contradicts moralism. It's going to be the next three verses. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not a word we use all the time. Jesus' resurrection gives him this unique position in new creation. If you guys notice, this is the second time Paul says firstborn. You guys notice that? Subtle, yes. He, first, he's the firstborn of all creation. Second, he's the firstborn from the dead. These are two different things. Firstborn of all creation was the status, authority, positional thing. Firstborn from the dead is a chronological thing. He is the firstborn of a new kingdom, a new way of life, a new people, a new world. When Jesus rose from the grave, he became the firstborn temporally of this new creation. He is a picture of what all people in him are looking towards in hope. The preeminence of Christ is pointing to Christ's supremacy over everyone and everything. And while he's always had positional supremacy as the creator and sustainer of all things, he takes on a new anointing as this risen king. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, way simpler than I just said it. The exaltation of Christ after his work on the cross gives him publicly the status which he always in fact enjoyed as of right. The puzzle, this puzzle of already and becoming, already not yet, this puzzle is caused by sin. Though always Lord by right, he must become Lord in fact by defeating death and sin. In the same way that we are becoming who we are, holy, blameless children of God, that's a fixed status and identity for us and something we're growing into over time, Jesus was becoming who he was. He was always preeminent. God, King, Lord, and is becoming those things through the resurrection. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's a whole backstory I'm not going to get into on why this verse is so, so crucial to the church in the Colossians. But just remember, this was a culture where they worshipped hundreds of gods. And so the monotheism of the Jewish and Christian faith couldn't be assumed. This was not like a fixed normal thing. This was something that would have been subversive and disruptive in the culture, that you would only worship one God. And so as they're talking about Jesus and God, Paul has to clarify that Jesus is fully God, that there is one God and three persons, but there's one God that we worship. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God. Jesus himself says to his disciples, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How do you make peace with God? Our answer cannot be anything but through the blood of Jesus. Jesus was the solution to the problem of sin in this world. And the way we are reconciled with God is through his blood. On the cross. The only reason we're no longer enemies of God is because of the work of Jesus. People always ask me uh, why we always, like, you know, kind of, especially like non-believers always ask me, why do we always sing so many songs about blood in church? It's like a weird thing. It's kind of a weird visual. It's not polite. It's messy. It's confusing. But we sing about the blood because it's by his blood that we are saved. It is the vehicle of salvation for us. He had to die so that we could live. And so we celebrate the work of Jesus that brought us new life. You can't save yourself. Like no amount of serving, no amount of giving your money, no amount of church attendance, no amount of water conservation or recycling or whatever is going to save you. You can't save yourself. As awesome as you think you are, you're not awesome enough. It had to be this way. Jesus had to die for you to get life. We have peace with God because of the work of Jesus. This was a new concept for the church at Colossae. This was a new concept for those who were getting converted to Christianity from some other form of multiple God worship religion. Tim Keller once said, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you how to find God. And Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. This was new for the church at Colossians. that we didn't have to appease all these gods just to make it through the day. But we have one God who has come to find us and save us by his blood. So we have his righteousness. So we have his resurrection life. Paul's making sure that we all know without any doubt that in order for a person to be in right relationship with God, it has to be through the finished work of Jesus. There is no other way to God. There is no other way to be right with God. There is no other way to be reconciled with God. Nothing. No amount of moralism, no amount of legalism, no amount of rule following or religious activity will replace the finished work of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing positive you can do, no rule following, no sin avoiding will get you into relationship with God. Only the finished work of Jesus. And what Paul does here is he spends these verses talking about how amazing Jesus is. Look at who he is. He's God. He created everything. He sustained everything. He's the end goal of everything. He's the head of a church. He confronts our fears. He contradicts our moralism. He is the means by which we are saved and have life. He lifts up Jesus. And then in verse 21, he immediately begins to apply that to who we are. Spent all this time talking about who Jesus is, what he has done. And now in verse 21, says who we are because of all of that. And you, so the official Greek translation is y'all. It's a big plural. There it is, Luke. And y'all who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... So no one's exempt. That's the point of that y'all right there. Is that like, no one can raise your hand and say, oh, I was never hostile to God. No, no, no. That's all of us right here. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present y'all holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Paul is using really extreme language here to remind the Colossians how far from God they once were. We too need that harsh language because if we're looking on one side of the spectrum of like Billy Graham, Mother Teresa over here, and then we walk all the way over here, and like the other end of human misery is like Hitler, and we're like, okay, so the line between good and evil is right here. We're like just this side of good, like we're good enough. Right? That's, that's what we believe. Like, we, we didn't kill anyone recently. We didn't steal from anyone recently. We didn't assault anyone recently. So we're at least better than Hitler, who killed millions. Right? And what Paul's reminding us is we were all over here. Luke and Hitler. John and Hitler. We were all over here. We were all in a state of active rebellion to God. We were all in a state of being far distant from God. And through the reconciling work of Jesus, we are all perfectly holy and blameless and becoming holy and blameless in the sight of God. That We were all alienated. We were all hostile in minds. We were all living in rebellion to God. Jesus saves us through his work. And now we are wholly changed. Our identities are totally different. There is no spectrum here. It is those who have been saved by Jesus and those who have not yet been saved by Jesus. Our status is forever changed. My last Reeves quote of the night. As the father looks with pleasure and delight on his perfect son of his, so he looks with pleasure and delight on all who are in him. The father looks with pleasure and delight on you. Not because you're like something awesome on your own, but because of the work of Jesus, he sees delight in us. The prophet, the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah says he sings over you. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. He even likes you. You are lovely and worthy to God because of the work of Jesus. You are lovable and valued. You are liked by God, you are welcomed into his family and his king because of the work of Jesus. This is a total 180 from those who are far from God. But Because of the work of Jesus, he delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. He enjoys when you talk with him. He enjoys when you spend time with him. He enjoys watching you figure out how to stumble your way being a parent. He enjoys watching you start that new company of yours. He enjoys being with you in the nitty-gritty of life. And in verse 23, we have this little oddity here, this little like add-on that seems a bit out of place. But I think it seems out of place because we often misinterpret what's happening here. Verse 23 It says, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation. It seems out of place, I think, because we read that if as a conditional if, as an if-then statement. Like if we are stable and we reverse Paul's order, if we are stable and steadfast, then all of those other things apply to us. Like, if we are diligent and being stable and steadfast, then God will save us and make us no longer alienated or hostile towards him, and he will, his reconciling work applies to us. So that is a, a misreading of what is happening here. This is not conditional. This is descriptive. So think of, we just spent a whole lot of time in Matthew where Jesus was telling parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this, like this, like this. When the Son of Man returns, it'll be like this, like this, like this. One of those stories was of the wheat and the tares. Right? There's wheat and there's tares they are going to grow alongside one another. And it'll be on that day when the harvester comes and pulls up the wheat that like, people's true faith will be exposed. I don't know if you guys remember this story or not, but that's the story. So very similar, that's what Paul is getting at here. He's not saying if you hold stable and steadfast, then you somehow earn your way into Jesus' reconciliation. Rather, he is saying that true faith reveals itself over time. This is a descriptive statement of the life of a believer that because of who Jesus is and all he has done and because of who we are in his kingdom, that true faith will reveal itself over time. In the same way, Jesus told parables about letting wheat and tares grow together to see which of them grows. Then at the harvest, the wheat is picked, the tares are cast out. And Paul is saying true faith grows to reveal itself over time. This passage is the gospel of God. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Who are you and how then do you live? Four questions that help us remember the work of the gospel, to help us remember that it was not your moralism, it was not your church attendance, it was not your recycling that saved you. It was God who saved you through the work and person of Jesus. He obeyed the Father perfectly and went to the cross and as a result, our identities are forever changed. We are now called holy and blameless and becoming holy and blameless. What Jesus' work accomplished was an entirely new identity for us. He is the creator, the sustainer, the end goal of everything. And so the starting point to tackle any of life's problems is to see Jesus for who he is and shape our lives around that reality. Now, because a a teaching like this can stay in the abstract, I want to help us get insanely practical as we end here. Like the last little bit are going to be three insanely practical things you and I can do to help us lift Jesus up. Whether we came in having a good day or a bad day. Whether we're like having some good rhythms of being in scripture and prayer and maybe found some silence and solitude this week and are, and are walking out this relationship with Jesus or whether we like blinked and it was like a week already and we've just got consumed by our own busyness and schedule or whatever. No matter how you've come in, the solution to any of life's problems it starts with Jesus. To start in a how-to-do-that kind of thing, I want to give you three really practical things. If you are a note-taking kind of person, this is a great opportunity to do just that. The answer to all of life's problems is to lift up Jesus. In our church, in the everydayness of our life, whatever, to lift him up. Here's how. Start right now, in about one and a half minutes, by worshiping Jesus. This may seem simple, and it may seem actually like an assumed thing. If you, like, show up at church, yeah, we're going to worship Jesus. But I would actually argue that we need to be a bit more intentional about our worship of Jesus. We're going to start by declaring he's Lord and you're not. That's a really important starting place for worship. And you can't really, like, proclaim you are Lord and sing songs about Jesus being Lord. They're incompatible, and you'll be ripped up from the inside out. Like, you just won't be able to settle that distinction. Worshipping Jesus is doing spiritual battle with the enemy who wants to take your eyes off Jesus and to see yourself as the center of the universe. Satan's prime goal is to take your eyes off Jesus and often he will use our own self-centeredness to our own disadvantage. Worshipping is is spiritual battle to redirect our minds and our hearts to Jesus as the supreme center of the universe, the King, the Lord of all. I am not the Lord. I am not King of my life. I'm not the center of the universe. Jesus is. The starting point to lifting up Jesus is to actually do it. Worshiping is a great way to do that. He's the creator, the sustainer, the goal of creation, and you're not. And we're going to proclaim that in song. Next, insanely practical thing, ask yourself, but probably more importantly, your family and your community group, where are you the center of your universe? Where are you lifting yourself up as king, lord of your life, chief decision maker, chief supplier of happiness and value and satisfaction? Where have you taken your eyes off Jesus? With your money, your kiddos, your job, whatever. The reason I say more importantly, your family and your community groups is they, those people closest to us, will have a tendency to see our blind spots better than we do, right? Where are you the center of your universe? Ask for some insight. Next, give those people permission to help you change. If our stated reality, is that Jesus is the center of the universe, but our lived experience is, Bert is the center of my universe. There's a disconnect there that needs remedied. Ask them for insight, and invite them to help you change. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to let you hit on a secret. They won't help you change unless you ask them. Your family, your friends, your community group, they're not going to help you change unless you invite that in. Invite them to help you change. Change. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we were working through our Practicing the Way of Jesus teaching series, and we had this week, Becoming Like Jesus, and we talked about this paradigm for how we change. Uh, just understanding biblically, like, what, what is our matrix for changing? Transforming is the biblical word. How do we change in life? And we talked about through the empowerment and continuing power of the Holy Spirit, we change in a couple of different ways. One is by teaching, which is what we're doing here tonight, what we did for the last 40 some odd minutes. Like you, Paul says, it is crucial that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is a crucial component to how we change in life, receiving new information. But we know it doesn't stop there. Because the other elements of how we change are doing it, are practicing this, actually doing it, and doing it in community. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, teaching, practice, community, this is how we change. So you guys have heard a teaching about lifting Jesus up. You've seen the text about how Paul, before he addresses any problems in the Colossian church, lifts Jesus up. That's the first thing in our solution. And what you're going to do is go to your community and say, where am I missing it? Where am I the center? Where am I lifting myself up? Where have I taken my eyes off Jesus? Show me, help me, and invite them to help you change. And then, you know, try it out. Like give it a one-week experiment. Just see how it goes. Invite them in and just try not being the center of your universe and see what happens this week. See how decisions are made a bit differently. See how decisions about our schedule or our money, our family, our friendships, or what we do with whatever we've been given in life. See how that just changes day by day. Paul says glory by glory more and more to reflect his heart and less of ours and the world around us. So with that, we're going to sing. We're actually going to put the first part of this into practice. We're going to start by worshiping Jesus. And uh, I would love you guys to stand. I want to pray a blessing with and for you as we tackle this first one together as a church. Father, we love you so much. God, thanks for what you're doing in our church. Thanks for this story of a small podunk church in a small podunk town and how we're reading about them 2,000 some odd years later. God, we, we recognize that, that we're walking in today very well equipped to solve all of our problems on our own. And out of submission to you and your scripture, we want to, instead of relying on our knowledge, willpower, or experience, or escapism, or numbing activity, actually go to you and let you change us invite you into all of our problems and temptations and issues and ask you to be working in our hearts to change us. God, as we worship, as we do battle with the enemy who wants us to focus our eyes on ourselves, would you help lift our eyes? Psalm 3 says you are the lifter of our eyes. When we don't have the power or the strength to do it on our own, you do it for us. Lift our eyes to you. Lift our heads to see you. God, would we see you as the North Star in our life and arrange our lives accordingly? Would you help us change individually and as a church to be people who rely dependently on you? And to every one of life's problems, we start first by lifting you up and seeing you for who you are. God, king, creator, sustainer, end goal, head of the church. And would you just start to beat back the enemy's lies in our life that tell us we're not good enough, we can figure it out on our own, the problems really aren't that big a deal. We don't need to go through this motion or exercise or doubting that you actually have the power. And so Father, I pray that as we worship, we would see you as the creator and sustainer of everything including our lives. Amen.